Reverend. You can have any truth you want. Walk, talk, address a duke, a lord, a bishop, an ambassador. It's absolutely impossible. Projections podcast. We are Sarah Catherine Cleaver and Mary Wilde, and we like to use psychoanalysis to talk about film and film to talk about life. We're back with a series of episodes exploring fashion films. We'll be running through themes including controlling creation, desiring desire, violence and bodies, consuming and corruption, fetish, reading clothes, and disguise and secrets, as well as anything else that happens to come up during our sessions. We're especially fascinated by the relationship between fashion and death, and we've chosen films that represent this intriguing dynamic. Join us for an in-depth investigation of fashion films. Bye! Hello, Sarah. Hello, Mary. So, this is our second episode in our new series. series. Our second series. So, we started off looking at control and creation in the first week. And now we're moving on to Desiring Desire as in yes. as the next theme. Of That's the our catchy title yeah. for, these, for these films. Um, we are continuing to talk about fashion films. That's films right. about fashion or films made within the fashion industry or by someone in the fashion industry. Um, and this is kind of a pet project for me, this particular episode, because I wrote my dissertation on one of these films. Mm. And I saw the other film in the same year that I wrote my dissertation. Ah, fantastic. Yeah, so I had a very fashion-y film. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we are going to be talking about Bruce Weber's Chop Suey, yeah. I think it's 2003, 2002, something like that. Yeah. Um, which is probably, I would not be surprised if none of our viewers have seen it. It's, mm. I don't know how I saw it. It's, no, I do. Mm. It was shown in a class, I think, at university. Yeah. Um. Because I, I hadn't seen it before you mentioned it. No, I think mm. it's not, I mean, it's an essay film. It's not mm. a, it's not a, a Proper, you know, it's not a feature film. It's not mm. a. It's not. There's no narrative in it, and it's not even really a documentary. Mm. Bruce Weber has Bruce Weber, who is a fashion photographer, one of yeah. the big American fashion photographers. He makes a lot of films like this, That's which right. are kind of just love letters to things that he likes. So he's made one about Robert Mitchum, and made one about Chet Baker. He made the quite right. famous film about Chet Baker. Yeah. Um, he made one about his dogs, which just oh, makes yeah. my eyes roll. Um, you know how I feel about people <laughs> loving their dogs. <laughs> Boxes. Mm-hmm. He just like he just will fall in love with subjects and he'll wax lyrical about them in what some people would say is quite a hollow and self indulgent way. Mm. But I was very captured by this film at the time. I found it very romantic and I it really fed into certain. I think it really fed into how I felt about my life. Actually, I think I had a very personal connection with that. Yeah. Um, and then the other film we're going to talk about is Tom Ford's A Single Man. Yeah. So the first film is made by a fashion photographer. The second film is made by a fashion designer. designer. Yeah. So we've got this full spectrum of fashion professionals moving over into the world of film. That's right. Um, so we will talk <clears throat> about Chop Suey first. Chop Suey is basically a film about a model named mm-hmm. Peter Johnson that Bruce Weber was obsessed with. I think is that's right. Is it, it's okay to say. Yeah. Um, he made a big. There's a huge, very expensive, quite rare book called The Chop Suey Club, which is 
like hundreds of these very they're not just sexual photos they are like they're just there's there's something so kind of flamboyant about the way that they've dressed up this this young man it's not just Bruce Weber's photos it's a group of photographers taking photos of, the, of Peter Johnson in like sometimes in dresses or yeah. like you know with like things draped over him and in all these kind of classical like sort of mythological scenes like frolicking with dogs and elephants mm -hmm. um and so the film is about his infatuation with Peter Johnson who's very young and very I don't know sort of <clears throat> almost so young and so kind of naive that he doesn't really have doesn't seem to have very much of his own identity or at least Bruce Weber doesn't really portray very much about yeah. Johnson's identity it's very much a film about a photographer's I suppose a photographer's projection of yeah. you know of his muse as opposed to who the muse really is <clears throat> um, and then it's kind of padded out with all of these other people that Bruce Weber ha is infatuated with and a lot of them are sort of like old sort of broken down like ruined beauties like Robert Mitchum and Liz Taylor yeah and then there's a sort of a side story about um Fran what's she called Francis? Faith Francis Faith yes is a night like a jazz singer but sort of very famous like gay figure mm -hmm. um let me just double check her name yeah it is Faye something Francis Faye is it not Francis Faye Francis Faye Francis Faye there you go <laughs> Um, there's also another story about an art director and his model and muse, which yeah. I've, is one of the ones that I found that maybe the one of the darkest, in a way. Mm -hmm. um, but it's worth talking a little bit about Bruce Weber and what he has done for the industry, and then what he has done recently. Because yeah. he's basically widely known for his ad campaigns for Calvin Klein, um, Ralph Lauren, and Abercrombie. Bitch. That's right. That's right. There is actually you would like this. Yeah. This is something that I desperately want to possess. And if anyone who <laughs> listens to our podcast has deep pockets and feels like gifting me with something, yeah. what I really want is a two thousand and something Abercrombie and Fitch catalog with photographs by Bruce Weber and words by Zizek. <gasps> really? Yes. Wait. And this exists. This exists. Oh my god. Yeah. It's one of the, I think it's a, like the spring break issue or something, and it's all of these like youths frolicking together and Zizek's writing on desire, basically. Oh my god. So I want a copy too. Yeah, we, can we have two copies of this incredibly rare document, please? We'd really like that. I've been looking for it for absolutely years. If anyone can help me find it, I would really appreciate it. It's all I want in life. I feel like we should really develop um, what a fin dom dimension to our podcast financial yes. domination if you would like us to say if you would like us to say anything for you or berate you or if you'd like to hear <laughs> us say daddy again like we did in that um assassination nation podcast you say it so well you say it like marilyn say go and say daddy for the fam daddy <laughs> Um, yeah, we'll, we'd be happy to establish oh, that yeah. kind of thing with you. That's absolutely fine. Get in, touch. Get in touch. Email <laughs> us. Let us know what you want. Um, so I really, I think that there's something yeah. very fascinating about Bruce Weber because all of his work is about desire. That's right. And he, like, he knows what he's doing and he really established certain mm -hmm. things that now the certain kind of tropes that now the fashion industry takes for granted. Oh, yeah. That sort of idea of, like, the heterosexual man bonding in what is actually a very, like, homosexual way. Yeah. It's very Bruce Weber. That yeah. idea of, like, the straight man made, the, the, like, the queered straight man is, is 
like is Bruce Weber's invention, that is Bruce Weber's vision. Oh, completely. If Abercrombie and Fitch used to be, you know, a used to be a sort of like ultra masculine company, and he just turned it into this like gay icon yeah. of a brand that was completely like taken over and adopted by gay men. You oh, know, completely. it was this, you know, and all of those catalogues they were like softcore porn, thought of as really controversial. Because of his, yeah. because of his gaze, and it's very, like, I think it's very important and very freeing gaze. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I'm also just here looking at some photographs of uh, his campaign for Versace. Yeah. You know, uh, you, and you can really see the same thing coming through. This uh, very sort of ambiguously gay. It's very ambiguous. You know. And he's taken all of those what are usually just like very like homosocial situations, yeah. locker rooms, sports. You know, yeah. football games, things like that, and he's turned and he's turned them. I would say queer, not gay. I yeah. would say he's queered them. Yeah, absolutely. He's yeah, he's loosened those signifiers. Yes, sufficiently exactly. that now we're kind of you know there are more possibilities emerging from the images. Yeah, as maybe previously they might have been too locked down. Yes. Yeah. And in his own life, Bruce Weber is uh, like very much an ambiguous figure. I mean, he's been living with a woman for yeah. years and years. Who I think is sort of his a. Uh, not photographic assistant, but kind of his like business partner, that's right, and life partner, um, Nan Bush. Nan Bush. Yeah. Um. He. Uh. But he. Um. But he's admitted that he's had relationships he's with men. That he's had relationships with men. He's never yeah. come out as anything, which no. is very like quite an interesting yeah. stance. He has like he has so he has this like, very deliberately undefined yeah. sexuality. Sexuality. I think that. The way that Chop Suey comes across when you watch it when you're young, you don't know very much about Bruce Webber, it comes across as this very, very innocent, mm. very sweet, like very kind of chaste view on the world, which I now will come watch it as an adult, and especially with the recent allegations yeah. against Bruce Webber, which he just like fervently denies, and yeah. which, no, you know, have not gone to court as no. yet, and which we just don't know, we just don't know about. No, we can only present but, them as allegations as opposed to yeah. make a decisive comment about his the nature of his involvement. Yeah, but um, the allegations are that he, um, the allegations are male models yeah. sort of coming forward and saying that they were put into some very awkward situations with, like, and made to do like these strange like breathing exercises and like yeah. touch themselves in front of him, and that they risked being like having being blacklisted yeah. on, and having their careers ruined if they didn't do it. That's right. And he made it's alleged that he said that they could go far in their career if mm-hmm. they complied with his yes wishes. And that I think that if they, I think that some, I think that some of them did feel that they had been they were cast out. Yeah. As a result of not complying. That's right. Which is, is really horrible. Yeah, it's horrible. I mean, it has, you know, it has shades of Weinstein. It is it's exactly the same. Yeah. And he is very powerful. And he's he very is, powerful. And when, you know, he does, and he has, he's someone that does present himself as this very, like, this quite naive person that just, like, loves people for their souls. Yeah. But actually, he's this huge networker. He loves celebrities. And, he and name drops a lot in drops, that. Or, you know, my friend Robert Mitchum, my friend Liz Taylor. What looks like this very romantic view on the world is actually a very considered, very manipulative one. Yeah. And I'm and really... It's very a hoarding of power. It is a hoarding of power. And Chop Suey, in a way, is, is just a display of, I mean, look what I've got, look at all of these yeah. people in my life. So it's actually a very sinister film. Yeah. But when I chose it, it's only really quite recently that I've seen that film as sinister because when yeah. I, I chose to write about it, I was very interested in 
at the time I had this very this personal interest in I suppose how to sustain desire mm-hmm. and how to never let it die. I was very I was a big, a big fetishist for that mm. when I was younger. Yeah, I was a big fetishist for the unavailable mm-hmm. and for I think like a lot of people. Yeah. Oh, I mean I think we all we are all like that. Absolutely. But yeah. I think mine was very conscious. I think we all are attracted to things that will maybe make us suffer. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because we're used to suffering because everyone suffers in some way and we grow comfortable with it. Yeah. But I was very, but I was, I was like always chasing that and I was always very interested in that and I was always interested in being in love with things that I couldn't have or things that weren't for me. Okay. So I would, I loved Chop Suey because it felt like this, I see. It felt like this ode to the unattainable and I was so fascinated by it and I felt, and I felt that Bruce Weber really saw the fashion industry for what it was, which was a, like a big delayed orgasm or something, just like this, this practice of making things look making things look so far away from what you can have you know and like the all these unattainable bodies all these unattainable models all these unattainable clothes and he says in the film we photograph things we know we can never be yeah and it's true and I found that like so sad and so beautiful and so so interesting that someone just understood fashion so well so that's how I saw it at the time. And now I obviously see it in a much darker light, in a much less kind of philosophical light. Yeah, because I have to say, like, um, I kind of, I wasn't really that conscious of Bruce Weber until you mentioned him to me. Mm-hmm. Of course, I had seen his images, not really knowing who was behind them. So, of course, I'd seen, um, you know, those beautiful black and white magazine uh, images. Um Particularly his work on with Ralph Lauren, like I was really familiar yeah. with that. Yeah. And um, and so I wasn't so conscious of him as an auteur or as someone who was such a big name in the fashion industry. And when I read about these allegations made against him, I mean, even just a few days ago, mm-hmm. something yeah, emerged. Yeah, a couple of days ago. Yeah, something emerged in in the media about some new claims or some, you know, new developments in those allegations or, or even new people coming forward. I think it's five, five different people now. Wow. Mm. That's, that's extraordinary. And so all this to say that I had not seen Chop Suey before your recommendation. So I came to it having already read about the allegations Mm -hmm. So I already, in a way, I was in a very different frame of mind to how you consumed the film, because you kind of were looking at it, I think, understandably, you know, from um, that, at that time, you must have watched it, and yes, I can see how it can really come across as a kind of very, almost like innocent. It's innocent and it's romantic, like it felt yeah. like to me just the complete essence of what romance is. Yeah. The whole film. Yeah. It's a celebration of beauty. Yeah. Like it does it does come across like that. And of course it has that huge dimension to it where someone is just kind of it's like a big ode to beauty, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, celebra- and celebration and in a way Thanksgiving. Yeah. And uh, also just it felt like um he's saying I'm sad. I'm yeah. perpetually sad. For anyone else that's perpetually sad, let's be sad together. Yeah. You know, let's suffer together. Like, our suffering is really beautiful and our suffering is what makes makes work. Yeah. That's so naive of me to have thought that. No, I don't think so because I think you're, you know, prior to the um, this exposure now in the media about what people have claimed about 
his behavior, I can't see how these things can be perceived in this way. I think there's no need to suspect someone, you know, without, without any kind of claims being made against them. Um, so we can only take those people at their word or what they project and, and, and the content they create. Now, it's very interesting because for me watching this film, I came to it with the knowledge of these allegations post Weinstein. Mm. And the way that I watched it, the whole time I was thinking, oh my God, he's a predator. Mm. Like, that's all I could see. Like, I couldn't unsee this other dimension of what these claims were. Yeah. And so, because I had, and it's very, in a way, that's very interesting in itself, uh, because I didn't really know anything about this guy. Um, I, I was familiar with the images and I appreciated them for what they were. I know that he also took some really iconic images of like photographs of like Leonardo DiCaprio, like mm -hmm. major Hollywood A-listers. Yeah. And again, when I searched him online, I saw images that I had seen before not having been, not having known that they were him. So I was already unconsciously familiar with his work. But then to come, come to the film and so, so much of the, words because it's kind of like a video essay right it it's is. like it's almost like a premeditated defense yeah <laughs> exactly exactly and it just it's like watching lolita it's yeah. like it's like reading humbert humbert like yeah. oh my god it's think, so true like it's it is you like know this is my worldview and this is how i want to be remembered you know this is how this is this is how i talk about my life and this is how i have conceived of myself yeah. It's incredibly interesting sort of psychoanalytic look into someone who had, you know, who, and, and, you know, now as an adult, I can see, yeah, I, I can see someone speaking about themselves and the way that they see things so frankly without any kind of self-doubt is actually very scary. Yeah. And he does, that is how he speaks. You that know, is like, literally you know, how, how we, we, you know, <sighs> are, are right to feel this way. And I was so convinced. I know. That, you know, this is the system. The system is is to somehow both put people up on a pedestal, but also turn them into objects. That's right. I and mean, it's like he was looking at these things completely uncritically. Mm. And with such a lack of self-awareness yeah. about his role in perpetuating a system like that, but actually, he was just fully pushing it forward and like doing nothing to maybe safeguard the role of these other participants. Mm -hmm. There was no safeguarding or anything like that. It was just, it just seemed like such a ravenous gaze. It was, it's so ravenous. He just consumes everyone, you know, whether they're Hollywood stars or whether they're young young like teenage models yeah. or like old queer yeah. icons and whoever it is they're just for the taking they're just they're just for the objectifying exactly um and i don't you know what and i still have like i still have a soft spot for a lot of this you know this film and i still have a soft spot for the idea of desiring oh yeah i think it's a very you know i think it's a very important thing and i th still think that fashion and the world owes him this huge debt for the way he's photographed male bodies and oh, the way yeah. he's photographed male personalities as well. Mm -hmm. The way he's, you know, photographed these men and he's made them so beautiful and he's made their their friendships and their world, their inner world so so beautiful. Yeah. It's, it's really important, whether it's true or not, of these people. So what do you think of Peter Johnson? Because wow. he does, he is allowed to speak a couple of times yeah. in this documentary. I felt really uneasy yeah. watching a lot of the stuff with him yeah. because... 
particularly there was one am I right in thinking there was a scene where they were going through a, a book of images and there was some of Ava Gardner and he was kind of is that I felt like he was just being educated yeah he is like he feels like there's all of these grown-ups talking to him like, like patronized well that he never really asked to be a part exactly of. and the interesting thing about Peter Johnson is that I mean obviously he's straight okay so he was never he was never going to be a like a, a sexual partner for Bruce Webber okay um and he went away and got married and never modeled again Really? And he has loads of kids. Really? And he does something completely different. He didn't, like, he never wanted to be a model. He did this thing and he got to meet all of these, he got to meet a lot of interesting people and he got to do What, does he, what does he do now out of interest, do you know? I can't remember. And I tried to, uh, years ago, I re, as I revisited this and wrote about it for one of Kathy Lomax's magazines, yeah. uh, Garage Land or Artie. I think it might have been Garage Land and I think the theme was the fakes. Oh, yeah. And so I wrote about it. Um, I just wrote about concepts of, you know, what we think love is versus what love really is. And there is a line, actually, where he says to... He's talking about the art director who was in love with the swimsuit model. The, oh, who yeah, was, yeah. And he's, and he's, you know, that, that relationship kind of mirrors mm-hmm. Bruce Weber and Peter Johnson. And when the art director died, um, he's talking to the... the the model mm-hmm. and says you know they're looking at pictures of him and he says you know no one ever loved you more and this guy's got a wife and kids like what an insulting thing of course you know of course people have loved me more oh yeah that's right I saw that and I thought it's just it's the, I, I felt like it was trying to capture him in some way like exert some kind of control it is and it's a it's a really interesting mistake to yeah. say love like that Oh, I mean, yeah. I'm sure there was probably something between them, you know, like there are, you know, there are a lot, but to say no, no one ever, ever loved you more is that's a very presumptuous. Thing. It's a presumptuous thing and it's a really nasty thing. It is very nasty. Yeah, it, I, I think it's, it's meant to be a compliment, but it doesn't come across that way. It doesn't way. come across that way at all. And it's, there is something, I find that very fascinating mm. when people, me included, mistake something for love that is that is not wow yeah and it happens I think it happens to all of us and we all grow into oh, absolutely. a different and maybe absolutely. there are like multiple there are multiple types of love yeah and obviously. you know we have we'll have a benevolent per- perception of something mm-hmm. we, we don't want to assume there's something sinister there no we see and there's some, not always and there's know? not always it's just when it's proven to be or when when the narrative is no longer so so um persuasively benevolent mm-hmm. suddenly you think wow I took a lot of things for granted I mean I just I was a little bit uneasy with um there was just some of the stories like when he talked about who's that uh, figure that that lady Vreeland uh, Diana Vreeland Diana yeah. Vreeland and I think he used a lot of that footage from the I has to travel before that documentary was made that's right but there was so much content there about like how she lived on Park Avenue and that he'd seen her on the street once and she she loved his dog mm. and then one day he was there in her building and he found herself in the lift with her and he couldn't believe it. I don't know, there was something there that I found was a little bit like maybe he was insecure mm. 
and he found some kind of solace or comfort being near people like that, like of that stature. Mm. That's how it came across to me. Yeah. As if, and I don't know that someone like Bruce Weber, who clearly is a very talented photographer, I mean, there's no disputing that. It's just fascinating to me when people of such enormous talent still display insecurity and then they seek to, I don't know, maybe reaffirm themselves by attaching themselves to certain other people or names. There was a lot of that going on. Yeah. But I do still think whether it's sad in a sinister way or sad in in a beautiful way, it is very representative of the way that you can read the entire purpose of fashion. Yeah, I think so. I think, and it doesn't, you know, whether or not he's guilty of the crimes that he's being accused of, um, for me, you know, I don't think that actually diminishes his contribution to the world of photography or fashion. Uh, I don't, I'm not one of these people. I know that sometimes uh, some people believe that we should just ignore the entire the entirety of someone's contributions if they've been found to do something, you know, unconscionable. Uh, I'm not sure who that benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me personally, I'm not I'm not very inclined to do that. So I say all of this, say you know, with with, with the uh, confidence that I'm sure that ultimately, you know, his legacy in that world. I think will remain. How can it not? Like he, cha- he literally changed in, in a very fundamental way, mm. the way that people relate to photography, fashion photography. So that's always going to be the case. Yeah. It's just, um, I guess what's really interesting is because he struck, he strikes me in the, in, in throughout the whole of Chop Suey as being very image conscious. Mm. So for example, uh, we don't really see himself represented no. in the film. And I feel like his voice doesn't really match his no. actual appearance. No, not at all. He sounds like a young, he sounds like a little boy almost. Like yeah. the way he talks, he yeah. has this really naive way of expressing himself. And, yeah. But also just that the actual tone of voice sounds, it sounds really young. Yeah, and, and even some of the expressions he uses, yeah. you wouldn't think that he's like a, a man of a certain age. Yeah. You know, and... There's a kind of a disconnect between the representations. So it's like, and I just think that some, because some people are very image conscious and they're very aware of how they're represented on in the, you know, externally mm. to other people. And they control that very diligently. You know, they, they won't allow certain photographs of them to be out there. You know, they have to have final say on what's being put out. And uh, because he's a photographer, and he, of course, would curate then his portfolio about how he presents his work, I think he ha- he exerts the same amount of control, mm-hmm. or he tries to, over his own content of his psyche, because this is very much a glimpse into his inner world. It's not just... You know, it's not a straightforward look at just his pictures. No, not at all. And he, well, well, I, what I really, something I really do like about him is yeah. that he, um, he's a collector. He's a collector. He's a collector of other people's pictures, and they're often vernacular pictures. They're not professional, you know, or they're, yeah. they're like pictures that some like star has taken of a, a party oh, yeah. or something like that. Like, he does collect like Western's, but he, you know, they seem to be 
a lot of them are just mm. are just snapshots and I really he's got an amazing collection like if he put on an exhibition it would be incredible because he talks through his collection that's right he owns those pictures yeah that's that's like his archive he takes these archives of these very like personal moments in other people's lives wow or he takes photographs of he will he likes photographs of Edward Weston that he took of his wives. Like he oh, yeah. and he tells those story, you know, these stories. He loves these stories of other people's love affairs. Oh, God. And he has that preoccupation. I wonder I wonder if he realizes how much he's actually declaring about himself in the revelation of these colla- I don't well, know. That's the thing, because this film, you know, it has these two layers. You know, it has what his voiceover and what he wants us to take from the film, which is what I took from the film first time. Yeah. And then it has these other things in it which are accidental. And that's what's so interesting. That's why this film is still something I want to watch. Yeah. It's a very, it's it's a worthwhile viewing for unintentional revelations, yeah. I think. Because he is, I think he, there's a bit, there's a bit of a gap between what he might have hoped to declare about himself and really what he's saying. Mm. And um, in some ways, I'm sure he would have liked to think that he was fully in control. But as it is with so much of this kind of writing, because it's so intent on being uh, on on a certain... Because he writes in a, in a way that I would describe as maybe a bit earnest. Like mm-hmm. he's trying to portray the best side of himself. Yeah. And that he's kind of sophisticated and he's... You know what I mean? Yeah, but it's... I'm just thinking about the final line, the final story he tells. He's saying, you know, he's the last day of him shooting Peter Johnson and they're shooting him, I don't know, like in the shower or something. And he's like, his towel slipped down and we looked at each other and we both laughed. Yeah. It's like, what a... I know. No, you did not. Like, you know, like this, what sounds like it's going to be this really erotic moment, like ends up like like an episode, like the ending of an episode of Happy Days or something. <laughs> we, we all laughed. Like, it's like, you know, you didn't. Like, that's not, that's not how those stories, like, you can't just have it both ways. You can't have this unbridled eroticism and then, oh, but it was all, and then we all didn't really, none of us, no one had penises and we're all like Barbies. <laughs> You know, it's it's so it's so such a straight. It's like having your cake and eating it. That that entire film. That's what I mean. Like because I think there's so many passages in his text that try and sound very highbrow, mm. but then there's like these little slips where yeah. it, it doesn't quite match up, and it almost sounds like I don't know if it sounds inexperienced or uh, immersed in his own fantasy bubble, but. It just, it seems so, it's, it's such a contrast mm. to this other image that he wants to project. Um, yeah, I, I felt like it was such a bizarre feeling to have watched a, a, a feature-length film, really, um, where I was expecting to come away knowing more about the person. No. And I come away... Thinking, who is this guy? Yeah, I have who, no who idea. In that film, who's and Peter who's Johnson? Anyone? Who's Bruce who's Peter Weber? Johnson? Yeah, who's who? Who are any of these people? It's just like flashes. Yeah, and I do think that it's um, where where Bruce Weber on one hand is so is so clever and so knowledgeable about you know what he's making work about, yeah. but at the same time he's fallen into the trap that you would fall into as just a a viewer, yeah, where you've seen so much imagery, whether it's the imagery that you make or the imagery that other people make, you've seen so much that 
you start to see the world in a different way and you start yeah. to think you're different. Like, I've, I've always been really surprised when people say that fashion imagery, imagery makes them feel ugly. Because the more I look at fashion imagery, the more I, I imagine that I look like that. Like, the more proximity I have to beauty, the more I I get an impression of myself that's probably not true. Like, the proximity to those images just makes me feel more attractive. Mm-hmm. Just makes me imagine that that's how I look. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, and it's rare, It's quite rare that I, I am at it in a place where I will see myself as I am and I will like I will occasionally have that oh god I don't look so good as I thought but the more I see the more we live in a world where I see images of idealized image and the more that I have control over my own image Mm -hmm. the better I think I look Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't know if that's universal or if that's something that I mean I I relate to that I mainly you know the main beauty images I consume are uh like uh, makeup, yeah, and because I follow a lot of uh, YouTube tutorials, and yeah, I do, I've heard this before. I've I've heard this said before, where people have said that uh, these images are have a negative effect on self esteem. Yeah. That if you watch too many attractive women or whatever, then you look at yourself and you think I don't measure up to that. But I've I've not. Ha- I mean, I don't really have a strong link with. Um, like the, the the traditional fashion world, like catwalk models and stuff, mm-hmm. but absolutely in the beauty world, um, you know, in the makeup world, I I I, I follow loads of people, you yeah. know, and I'm always looking at how they look, and it, they don't, their images don't make me feel um, like inferior. No, if anything, it's 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 like. It's just inspo. Yeah, same. I feel really inspired, and I do look at a lot of catwalk models. Yeah, you know, and I know that I don't have the same body as them. Like he's very good. Bruce Webb is a very good example of someone that has kind of hypnotized themselves into just oh yeah thinking about beauty all the time. And that's and I think I find that actually quite like a positive. Yeah, it's very relatable. It's very relatable. Yeah, and I think he's very good. You know, as much as he's he's done these awful things he's a very mm. good example of someone that can uh, that sees the the positive inspiring side of fashion yeah you know and that's what well, I think that is what he wants to convey yeah and I do I do think there is a naivety in people that will look at a fashion image and make a link to anorexia oh yeah anorexia has got nothing to, I don't it's, no. it's got nothing to do with that no I don't think that anorexics have been looking at magazines and saying I'm going to starve myself to look like this mm-hmm. person. I don't really think that it works like that. It's something, It's about control. Yeah. It's about control in their own life. And I think that after the fact, after you've developed this this illness, mm. you know, you can you can tack oh, yeah, reasons yeah. and meaning onto it and you can, you know, you can explain yourself. Yeah. Away. You can explain your illness away and explain yourself and say, you know, this is what I'm doing. This yeah. Is, but it's deep down, it's not that. It's not a catalyst. No. Like, no, no, no. I agree. I agree. Maybe that we're going to get into trouble for saying that, but I really, I do firmly believe. No, I, I, I firmly believe that, that too. That eating disorders come from a very different place to imagery. Yeah. I, I, I think to say that they're linked in such a direct way mm. um, is actually, I think it's actually taking. I think it's almost an insult to the sufferer. I think so too. Because it's almost being too reductive about their psyche that they're just seeing something and wanting to emulate and copy. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. I think it, there is a case to be made for 
sufferers who, after their illness has been triggered, that other factors play into exactly. it. And there may be some kind of like preoccupations. But I don't, I personally agree with you that I don't think it's that reductive. Mm. I think there's some, it's much more about control. Yeah. Probably, you know, than, than um, necessarily wanting to copy. Yeah, we all, I think we all attach logical sort of things on top of our neuroses. Yeah. That this, this is the reason why this hurts my feelings. This is the reason mm. that I panic. The reason that you panic is so far yeah. in the past that you probably don't even remember it. Yeah, you've repressed that. Yeah. So you will find other things. You'll find other things to perpetuate that narrative. Exactly. But I remember exactly. having eating problems as a child. Mm -hmm. And it was definitely to do with controlling my image. But it was to do with the image of myself eating. Mm -hmm. so I couldn't eat in front of people. Mm -hmm. I couldn't have any associations made between what was wrong, what I could perceive to be wrong with me and what I was eating. Oh yeah. So yeah. I would own, okay. so I wouldn't like eat lunch with all the other kids. And it it was about 10 years of doing that. Yeah. But it was never, it would never have been, I want to be thin. It was mm. to do with the flaws that I could see in myself that were more, that were more subtle. Mm -hmm. And I just, I couldn't bear to have anyone think that I was allowing those flaws to happen mm. by eating wrong or by, yeah. Doing, you know, so I just couldn't do anything. In sure. case people like blamed me for my inadequacies. Sure. Yeah. That Basically. makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I agree. I think it's nice to at least acknowledge for sure that with, with all his, of, of Bruce Weber's, uh, you know, the quagmire that he's now in mm -hmm. with these allegations coming out, I think, yeah, there's still a space to make the claim that um, he, there was this kind of unbridled. Um, sort of devotion, yeah, to to beauty. There, there is, you know, you know, and it, even though sometimes he sounded a little bit pretentious, mm -hmm. or even you know, patronizing, or whatever, or even predatory, very even yeah. predatory, yeah, or maybe sometimes too simplistic. Mm -hmm. Still, though, um, I was take I was really taken aback by some of the beautiful shots. Mm -hmm. I mean, that for me really dominated as uh, as a constant throughout the film. Yeah to see th these these incredible images that he produced. And they're really interesting people he worked with. Yeah, they're amazing. And he has these great stories. He's yeah. like great, like, he's great for sort of anecdotes. Yeah, yeah. He clearly loves that. I think it's still a really interesting consideration of desire and lust and how much of that is, how much of that is, how much of desire is about you. Yeah. When you think that, when you think that you're desiring something or someone, how much of, what desire is actually made up of is just some kind of hole in you, or just yeah. some kind of lack in you. So. It's fascinating, yeah, because he does say we take pictures of things we can never be, yeah. you know? So there is that, you know, embedded in that is mm -hmm. this whole thing about his position in, in relation to desire. Exactly, and that's, and what more, what more, how more fashion could you be? You oh, know? yeah. Because, and with the, you'd never sit down and consider why you desire that pair of shoes. It's because something, like, there's something very, very specific embedded in you that makes that object speak to you. Yeah. And it's not embedded in you by advertising, and it's not embedded in you by Instagram, and it's not embedded in you by what Vogue says you should wear. It's something so personal and so primal that makes you love this coat and this runway show over another one mm -hmm. and the idea that the idea that fashion is I mean it's like it's obviously a system it's obviously about consumerism but the idea that all of that stuff would work if there wasn't some personal neurosis in you that's making it work yeah it's like it's it's definitely it's about you and it's about what's inside you and that's what makes it so fascinating yeah form. so subjective mm -hmm.
Yeah, it's so true. And at, and at the end of the day, it's all like all these objects in fashion. They're like they're they're like dream objects. They are objects of desire. Yeah, that's what they call them, and yeah. that's what they are. As much as we say that film is a window into who into you are, who you are, and how what how you desire, so is fashion. And that's why that's why it's so ludicrous that it's thought of as this superficial thing when it's something very this really is about your deepest wants because I'm now thinking of you know that Zizek quote where he in, I think it's in Pervert's Guide to Cinema he says cinema is the ultimate pervert art mm -hmm. because it tells you how to desire yeah right and you, you are you saying that it's the same the same thing applies in fashion yeah yeah, I think so. I really think so. And I think yeah. that it, it directs your desire. It directs your desire. I mean, it, maybe it tells you what to desire as opposed to how. Mm. Because it already knows, it knows oh, sorry, that you already it, know. Yeah, yeah, that's right. No, he says that, he says it doesn't tell you what, he says cinema films don't tell you what how to desire, they tell desire. you how to desire. So maybe the fashion is the other component of that. Oh, it yeah, tells you what to right. desire. That's right. That's what it is. Um, yeah. I don't know. Or maybe it does tell you how to desire, but there's something very innate within us about fashion and that's why fashion works. Yeah. That's, it couldn't possibly... It, it, it's not. It's not something that's alien to any of us. No. And I think people think. I think I've got fashion's got nothing to do with me, and I've got nothing to do with fashion, and it's not true. No, I think even someone's uh, reluctance to be a fashionista—that's a position in itself. It is. You don't get a free pass um, because it's how you relate to it. It is. Fashion's in all of us. If you've yeah. got any kind of spark of desire, or yeah. any kind of spark of neuroses, or any kind of spark of anything, wanting, longing. All of those things, that's fashion. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's what it is. That's what it is. No one gets a break from that. No, yeah. no one does. So you're all, sorry, but you're all cinephiles and you're yeah. all fashionistas <laughs> in some way or another. Um, Shall we move on to a single man? Let's move on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So actually, um, this is a very different take mm. um, to Chop Suey in, in, in many Thank ways. Thank God. We couldn't talk about that again. <laughs> So single man, just sort of the top line stuff. The two, um, a release from two thousand and nine. It's an American drama film uh, directed by the fashion designer Tom Ford. This is his debut film. Mm -hmm. It's extraordinary, uh, and it stars Colin Firth. Uh, it's based on a novel of the same name by Christopher Isherwood, and Tom Ford, he being a first time director, he fin he financed the film himself. I didn't know that. Um, yeah. It doesn't surprise me, actually. It doesn't it? surprise me. I mean, of course, somebody with his reach and mm. his already very well-established um, position in the fashion world. Should we talk about Tom Ford's career really briefly? Yeah, absolutely. Because Tom Ford is most famous for this sort of makeover of the Gucci mm -hmm. brand. Yeah. So there's a period in the what nineties, late nineties, early two thousands, yeah. where Tom Ford was the creative director of Gucci, and it thought of as this this period where Gucci was incredibly sexy, and it was like, and they had all these like controversial ad campaigns. Yeah. Like there was one where like the Gucci logo was shaved in someone's pubic hair. Oh yeah, and uh, you know all of these like these incredible runway shows, all of this like almost like fetish stuff, all of yeah. this leather and. So he really made a name for himself there, and then he yeah. opened his own brand. That's and right. He's very, and he's also very famous for makeup and perfume. Oh, we yeah. both wear Tom Ford. Oh, yeah. Um, he's has this. I mean, his brand is very much around sex. Oh isn't yeah. It? Around sex and around sort of ambiguity of sexual attraction. 
Yeah, and it's it's he's very daring, and you know, for an, and for, for an American oh, as well, yeah. because and we already know we're just talking yeah. all of we, we know we're talking about Bruce Weber and how daring he was. There's still something about his work with this very American dream, like it's yeah. very conventional and it's very conformist. It's kind of, yeah, and in a way, it's quite, there is that a wholesome element. There's something very wholesome about it's it, and Tom Ford's not like no. that at all. No, 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 not at all. Exactly, Tom Ford. Um, he. I really see him as well as this kind of very daring, very uh, provocative. Yes, he is provocative. Uh, and especially when we consider that he's from Texas. Yes. So that's really interesting. Um, and he grew up in the suburbs of Houston, and I think he was born in Austin. Um, he, I think, dreamed to go and live in New York and work, work in fashion. Uh, when he was 16, he, he enrolled at um, the Brad College at Simon's Rock, which that's no like that is. fascinating <laughs> school. He dropped out, and then he moved to New York City to study art his history at NYU. Yeah, because there is something very establishment about him, even though he's very, yeah. you know, he's a provocateur. He's, there's something very, like, you know, he's very into tailoring. Oh, yes. Like, all of He's the, very disciplined. He's really disciplined. And he's also just, it's incredible perfectionist. Oh, yeah. And they said, you know, they talked, they've, in, you know, people interviewed him about making that film. And they don't you have too much to do? How do you make time? And I'm a very, very organized person. Yeah. And he really, he's, like, one, he's one of those, there's nothing chaotic about his no. creativity. <laughs> it's very, very disciplined. It's very structured. He works very hard. And he's just one of those incredible type a person yeah like he's got like an ado- he's got like a adopted children yeah that he like parents and then he has this line this tom ford line he has this he beauty line he yeah. directs he does all of these things and <laughs> he's just a very enviable person yeah and he he says that he just doesn't sleep very much yeah. like he's always working um he's got a long time partner mm-hmm. um yeah you're right like he is very established it's like a big contrast between the actual output, mm. which is really wild and sexy, but, the, but it's still a business. It's like a all business. of that, you know, all of that yeah. makeup, all of that perfume, and it's so expensive, and you're yeah. just gonna pay for it anyway because it's, it's so good. It's so good, and it's such a good luxury brand. I'm yeah. a big, big fan of Tom Ford. Um, his for all our fandom customers, yes, please, all the fandom people like, out there. <laughs> like, there's a lipstick that I particularly like. It's called Autoerotique. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, even his like names of. Of perfumes of, uh, of uh, lipsticks, very Freudian. Yeah, that's right. I, yeah. I have noticed that, and they're very sexual. Yeah, I'm sorry about the sirens, guys. We're still recording <laughs> in Mary's apartment. Um, yeah, he said it's like Black Orchid was supposed to smell like like semen or something, which it doesn't. But um, yeah, that was his sort of concept. Yeah. So a single man. So a single man. So it's a very interesting film because, in many ways, it's sort of. Well, it's about a guy, um, a middle-aged, depressed, gay British university professor living in L.A. in 1962. His name is George Falconer. And he, he's recently... So, basically, just to contextualize this, the setting and the, and the sort of social dynamics mm-hmm. of, of what people are experiencing, um, this is very much in the context of the Cuban Missile Crisis, Yeah. So there's this kind of looming fear of nuclear war. Um, And George is very much in a state of, I guess, grief. Uh, His longtime partner, Jim, uh, recently died in a car accident. 
um, so he's, he, he'd only been dead for eight months. So we see George, uh, at the beginning of the film, we see him kind of waking up from a, a, um, an anxiety dream. Mm. And we see him getting, you know, preparing for his day, getting yeah. ready for this the is day. Very, it's like a very much a day in the life film. Day in the and life, And the important yeah. thing about this day is that it's the day that he's decided, it's the day before he decided to kill himself. Yeah. Because he's, he experiences unbearable loss and life is and just he's waking up is painful and it's actually a very good representation of depression we should put it oh, on yeah. depression films list on letterboxd absolutely um, yeah. and because it is his last day on earth as he perceives it um his sort of the, the day becomes sensory overload of experiencing life again um so it's this sort of paradox then the day that he's decided to die is the day that he experiences some a rekindling of desire yeah. to live. Yeah. Flashes of Eros as he's yes. sort of disappearing in a fog of Thanatos. Yeah. It's yeah. really, it's like, and it's this very incredibly sentimental film. Similarly to Chop Suey, it's very, there's something very, almost very manipulative about the sentimentality because there's this swell of music all the time. As soon as, I, st- I was watching it the other day to take notes on it, as soon as it started, I started crying. Yeah. I just cried all the way through and it's not, and I don't think it's, yeah. It's not just because, I mean, I think it's a very good, very true representation of depression and oh, that yeah. was obviously painful, but it's the music. It just makes you cry <laughs> and it's very manipulative. It is very. It doesn't stop throughout the whole it's film. relentless. Relentless yeah. sentimentality. And do you think it's a good idea to pause mm-hmm. and for you to talk a little bit about some Freudian concepts of design? Yeah. So we haven't got that. We haven't done that yet. Well, sure. I mean... For Freud, um, Freud, I'm not sure that he focused as much on desire as someone like Lacan did, who Lacan was the real, he was the one who kind of took Freud very much and combined him with uh, Mm post-structuralism, linguistics, and because he was a kind of postmodernist, he was interested in desire. Mm. So for, I would say that the psychoanalytic reading of desire is very much tied to l'objet petit a, object A. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something that uh, in discourse, um, you know, in the way that we relate to language and the way that our unconscious is also revealed in our p- position in language, um, it's, it becomes very interesting because we um, structure our lives for things that we want, for things that motivate us. Now, of course, for Freud, initially, he believed that uh, we're motivated by the pleasure principle. We, we want to obtain pleasure. And that's, you know, that was how he structured his theory of psychoanalysis initially. But he was uh, given pause when he kept on hearing again and again through his patients. He began seeing this pattern um, whilst listening to them that actually, they were caught up in a lot of drama. They had a lot of recurring issues. Mm. They had a lot of pain and suffering. And he said, well, if they're, you know, in some cases, it's like they're choosing to suffer. Yeah. How can my theory that we're all motivated by the pleasure principle be true? How can that be? Because it seems like they desire suffering. Mm. It seems like they're actually much more motivated and probably more driven by pain. 
So then he had to kind of correct his theory, and this is this happened in 1920 in his paper Beyond the Pleasure Principle, when he said that actually um, what seems to um, direct a lot of our behavior unconsciously is um, some kind of death wish. Like there's some there's some kind of fusion between the erotic and the death drive, mm. you know, that actually on some level we're motivated by a desire, a secret desire to return to an inorganic state before we were alive because living is too painful. So we do things, we might do very subtle things to self-sabotage, like to destroy our plans. Um, we might arrive late for meetings or we might, uh, you know, say the wrong thing to the wrong person or just little ways in which we find to kind of set ourselves back, but we may also um, participate in much more destructive behaviors like addiction or whatever it may be, or we may even attempt suicide. I mean, there's a range of destructive behaviors. And he found it so fascinating that this should sit alongside our very impulses to survive, mm -hmm. to look after ourselves to desire better things, to seek out like harmony in relationships and find love and do well in work. So how, how can we have both? How can you hold the two things side by side? And ultimately, he just believed that these two very powerful forces um, intermingle. Mm. And, that's, and a lot of our behavior can be simultaneously both. Uh, this desire to live and do well, the erotic, and also this death wish that just wants, we just want to disappear and stop living. So in a way, this film is full of that. Yeah. It's this fusion of Eros and Thanatos. Um, as he plans out his suicide, I mean, we see him, he goes about his day putting his affairs in order, for focusing, you know, on what he needs to do. But then he also starts to see the beauty of isolated events. Um, there's these, the color scheme changes when the camera's on him. It's this, these drab, cool toned mm -hmm. colors. And when in flashbacks, they're black and white. Well, in flashbacks, sometimes they're in black and white, but sometimes they're in glow. Oh, yeah, that's true. Like, you know what it is? It, there's a mixture. Some flashbacks are in black and white. Some of the stuff that he sees currently, like in real time, right in front of him, like when he sees like men playing basketball shirtless. Mm -hmm. The colors are like these like insane um, technicolor, yeah, burning, colors. burning warm colors. You can see the heat kind of rising from the flesh. Um, very like diametrically opposed, like photographic negative of how he's pre presented. These very kind of sad gray tones um, lifeless. Uh, there's a great scene where he's, he's kind of flirting with this guy and there's a sunset mm. and this, and his whole, the image of the guy is just flooded in these beautiful pink, violet tones. Have you noticed they're talking, um, across from a psycho poster? Yeah, I did remember that. Oh, yeah. I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> Why? Why? Tell me. What to say? I know that I think that Tom Ford is a, you can tell he's a real cinephile. Oh, yeah. Even, even before he started making movies, like, I remember his fashion campaigns. They were, they're so vivid in my mind. They always had this 
kind of cinematic narrative mm -hmm. about them. So we can see that this is a guy who loves the movies, right? Um, so on the one hand, I think that um, there's definitely an element to that, like a kind of nod to the cinema. But Psycho, because when I think of Norman Bates, and when I think, you know... Oh, yeah, was, is it a comment on just the way that a 60s audience like would have perceived a, yeah. a queer sexuality? I think so. Yeah. I think so, because the, even when he gets together with his partner, Jim, you know, he's... I think there's a scene where they share a kiss in his house. Oh, yeah. And, and do you remember, like, it's like a glass... Like, there's a lot of glass... He says, you're not prepared for the reality of living in a glass house. Exactly. And it's this, yeah. And the guy says, well, just get drapes, mm. you know? Um, so he's... You can see that George is very preoccupied with how he's perceived as a gay man who... Yes, finds love with another man, mm. but maybe is not yet prepared to fully live out his sexuality in the plain sight of the world yeah. because of those attitudes that still existed at that time, those very negative judgments. Mm -hmm. I mean, even his best friend, played by Julianne Moore. Yeah, she says, she you says know, something like... You, we could have had a great life together. Yeah, you know? but she says something about your, what, you had with, what you had with him wasn't real. When are you going to have the real thing? That's what and, she says. And it's... Yeah, it's, it's very hurtful. Mm -hmm. It's completely dismissing the fact that he is, in fact, a gay man. Yeah. And that he did find legitimate love with another man. Mm -hmm. So she's just dismissing it almost out of hand. I guess this is the time when it was going homosexuality is still in the DSM as a as a perversion, as a as, as a, a mental, mental illness. illness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she says we could have you could have had the real thing. We could have kids. Yeah. All this kind of stuff, right? And she's, I mean, she then says jokingly, and you can see it is meant in a lighthearted way. She said, um, if you hadn't, if you hadn't been such a puff, yeah. we, we would have all been happy, you know, <laughs> such a great line. But you can see, you can tell she was joking, but you know, sometimes certain things are said in jest too, yeah. like certain true things, sentiments are said in jest. So ultimately what I get from this film is this kind of like two faceted desire. You know, there's a very good depiction of Freud's intermingling of the forces of mm -hmm. Eros and Thanatos, where um, he is, on the one hand, very much motivated to... Because he's still in that process of mourning. But here I would also say it's a very good... I, I agree, it's a very good depiction of depression, and it's also a very good depiction of what Freud says about melancholia. So he he makes this distinction, you know, Freud, um, between mourning and melancholia. Mourning is the grief of losing a specific love object, um, and it's a process that takes place in the conscious mind. It's a perfectly natural grief response, mm -hmm. yeah? But melancholia, it goes beyond that. Yeah, it does for him. It does for him, too. It's this grief for a loss that he's unable to fully comprehend or even identify. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, it's a very unconscious thing. Um, you know, mourning is perfectly healthy and a natural part of life in relation to loss. Melancholia is actually more pathological. It's not such a health, it's not such a functional response anymore. It, the melancholia is um, kind of like, it's some kind of process of emptying out the self, you know, where your conscious personality becomes so impoverished and, and impoverished and hollowed mm -hmm. that you really the, the subject starts to lose the will to live. Um, 
we can see throughout the film, like the whole thread of, of nuclear war and destruction, we hear him say, remind me again why we shouldn't all just be annihilated. You know, there's that, he has this real resentment for life, right. you know, that uh, it's just as well, we're all going to get wiped out anyway, and there's, and there's no reason to stop anyone doing that. Mm. Um, and but it's not the truth, is it? No, because it's not the truth. He's still like, just, you know, he's having this low risk of drinking and all of this beauty. He's conflicted. And there is this sort of thread that runs through it where people tell him what he wants. Yeah. You know, the, right. the Nicholas Holt character's got a child, not a child, a, a, a student mm -hmm. in his class who's a, like a, he's quite young. He's like, he looks, seems like a teenager, but I guess yeah. he's like a young adult. Um, who says, you know, I just, I just think, I thought you look like you can use, you could use some company or you could use, I can't yeah. remember exactly what he says, but I thought that you might like this. And the guy he meets at the convenience store says, I thought you might like someone to, you know, you, you look like you might like someone to be nice to you. Mm -hmm. And Julie Amos, you know, you look like maybe you would like the real thing. Maybe you'd like to have kids. Jennifer Goodwin, this next one over, you know, maybe you'd like to come for a, everyone's just, maybe you would like to do this. Maybe you would like, maybe this is what you need because he's just so incapable of, of knowing what he what would be good for him yeah. and what he does need doesn't feel like he needs anything that's right yeah there's this because what's really fascinating to me is even though he feels as low as he does and he starts out the day and he's fully intent on committing suicide that evening mm -hmm. what really struck me is yeah you're right like in on the one on the one hand because he does, he's kind of, in a way, given up the ghost. Like, he's just going through the motions of his last day. And there's some little moments where people are trying to reach out. There's these kind of little lifelines thrown in his direction. But he, he, he doesn't take them. He doesn't really uh, take on these offers of help. Um, he continues on with his plan. And then when he goes home, um, it's the ultimate instructional scene where it's the flat lay <laughs> and I actually put on Instagram that you know when he, he, he carefully lays out mm. like his suit and even instructions for the Windsor tie um, and his like cufflings and all the sets of keys and paperwork and everything for whoever will come and discover the body to know what to do like he's just he has he, he's thought of everything and then it's all laid out on the table and then Tom Ford's camera zooms, like pans out or kind of hovers above. For, I said on Instagram, this is the best flat lay ever. Yeah, it is. <laughs> because it's like, there's so much meaning behind it, you know? And it's so, on the one hand, so sad because he even puts a gun out. Uh, but it's also kind of impressive. Like... It's such an amazing, um, because he says, when, when he's getting ready in the morning, he, he compares him, his demeanor to his uh, late partner, Jim. Jim, he says, woke up happy, you know, with a spring in his step, and George always found that annoying. Mm -hmm. And he said, only fools wake up happy, or something like that, in the morning. And he said, for me, it takes me a longer time to become George. Yeah. And then it's Tom Ford's amazing montage of how he's getting ready, you know, like his incredible wardrobe. And what can imagine must be the most amazing, like, cologne. Like, it's all laid out. It's so beautiful. It's so tasteful. Mm. And, um, 
And so the, even in the flat lay, there's so much beauty in it and the way that it's being constructed. He hasn't just like haphazard, it's not just haphazard. It's not, there's, there's, it's so thoughtful and it's such an interesting curation of objects. Um, but it also reveals his neurotic need, like his neurotic desire to carefully prepare every minute detail of his death ritual. Um, this is what Lacan would have actually called a mortification. You know, neurotics are, and melancholics, he would categorize amongst neurotics. Neurotics are living in a per perpetual state of like a, ca a cadaver, mm. you know, not fully, not fully engaging in life, but not having fully the desire yet to die. It's kind of like existing between those two pains of existence very narrow space, just kept tiptoeing in that space all the time. Too afraid to live, too afraid to die. It's just somewhere in between, mortified. Um, and he kind of gets stuck, really. Um, this is also in keeping with Freud's idea of melancholia. He can't di fully digest the loss of Jim. Um, and so he directs the hatred and the loathing against himself. Um, it's very interesting you say about mortification because he mm. does have this very signature look and is that of is that what happens to you if you if you do um if you do perfect this signature style <laughs> and you do find the thing that you wear every day and you no longer have the desire to keep changing and that's what Tom because we say like Tom Ford has that amazing that combination of establishment and classicism but with this excitement and this sex and this, you know, all of these things that make it slightly different and yeah. slightly new. And that's where Tom Ford differs to George. Because for a little while I thought, you know, it's sort of George is the standard for Tom Ford, you know, this very, like, well-dressed. But he's not, is he? He's, yeah. He's, I don't think so. And his, the fact that he has all of these things and no desire for anything new, no desire for newness. Yeah, no desire for life. Yeah. You know, for him... Life is the threatening force that risks spilling over into him. And he doesn't want that yeah. because he's too sad. He's too full of sadness. There's no room for anything else. I agree. Mm. What's interesting is that Tom Ford has been public that he actually is a depression sufferer. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And he said that he had to, um, he had to find a way to combat his depression because it risked taking away his creativity and he couldn't let that go so he found ways to cope he said if if i were still suffering now i couldn't create mm -hmm. uh, and that's interesting because it means that he is very conscious of what he stands to lose which is his uh, ability to, to make things you know mm -hmm. to to invent as a creator um so in a way he has to be hyper vigilant against it um he is an example of someone who is hypervigilant. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Because he's so type A. Yeah. So he's going to find very practical solutions to taming this problem. Mm -hmm. You know, like making sure that however way it manifests itself, that it won't interfere with his work because his work, his work means a lot to him. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Um, Freud said that neurotics complain of their illness. So they'll say on paper, you know, that they, they hate feeling like this. But he also remar remarked that they do make the most of it. Mm -hmm. um, and he said, when it comes time 
to take away their symptoms. They will defend their neurosis like a lioness her young. That's interesting. And he does do that. Yeah, he, he does, does keep do refusing that. to. To yeah, he does keep refusing to take these lifelines. He does perpetually, like you know. Um, <laughs> he says, "Is it who's the Julianne Moore character? What's her name? Is it Charlie?" Um, he says to her, "There's nothing wrong with your life." You just like feeling sorry for yourself. It's one of your great pleasures. Mm. That's a great line. But he does that. Yeah, they're very similar. They're very similar. Yeah, he, he does that. You know, he likes to... and not. I don't want to say he likes to feel the way he does because I don't want to trivialize what depression feels like. But on some level... Oh, you do get attached to your depression. Yeah. Definitely. It becomes a safe space. Because a safe space, and I think, you know, Freud said this, and I think I tend to agree. He said that the melancholic has a great devotion for their sadness. You know, they, they make time to kind of, like, dwell in their sadness. There's some kind of uh, deliberate devotion of it, mm-hmm. you know? And he, he didn't mean that in a denigrating way. He just was observing... Um, how there is this kind of sense of, um, I don't know, maybe immerse, immersing oneself mm-hmm. in that feeling. I get this sense also watching like Lars von Trier films oh, about yeah. depression. You really get the sense that there's a lot of time, you know, spent in that space mm-hmm. uh, that the person kind of willfully enters. Um, Charlie also says to him, "Living in the past is my future." <laughs> Oh, that is a good line. I didn't. I missed it. I didn't notice her say that. Living in the past is my future. Because she's, she, you know, he's trying to console her that you know she still has her best years ahead of her. That um, because she's complaining that you know her kid doesn't visit her or whatever, her marriage has fallen apart, something like that. And he tries to reassure her and say, "Listen, you know, you've got a lot to live for. You've got a lot going on. Stop living in the past." And she says, "What are you talking about? Living in the past is my future." <laughs> I mean, this could be the tagline for neurosis. Mm. You know, there's a lot of time spent thinking about what might have happened if I had done this. You know, mm. what if I could change my past? I and she says, I've done everything now. right. I've done everything, everything right, right and it's still gone wrong. Yeah. Yeah. She's a, yeah, she is a good character. She's I a great character. I have feeling that Tom Ford really likes her. Oh, yeah. Character. He gives her a lot to do. Um, what did you think of Nicholas Holt's um, mo- white mohair mm. jumper? Oh, I hadn't really considered it. Actually, there's like there's another female character in it, um, yeah. the Nicholas Holt's girlfriend. Yeah, like, supposedly she's got a great sixties look. She looks like Bridget Bardot. Yeah, and uh, she gets sp- spoken about a lot. She doesn't have anything to say, but she gets spoken about. And Nicholas Holt keeps going. You know, oh, she says she says that you're like, or she says something about the professor, and he repeats it to the professor, mm. and then he says, oh, she says that I'm, you know, she, you know, I get so anxious, I have to get high. Oh, and he yeah. says, well, what about her? And he says, no, no, nothing scares her. And there is there is this preoccupation with women and the yeah. way that they're dealing with things so much better than the men in the in the film. You know, there's something really weird about that. But I just, mm. I kept, I was really like bemused by Nicholas Holt's mohair jumper, and I wondered if he's is he a lamb? Like, does he like does he <laughs> symbolize spring and rebirth? Oh and, wow! Like, you know, it is that. I must think be so. That. Yeah. I think so. It's really nice. It was a really nice touch. He wears it all throughout the film. Yeah, he does, doesn't he? I hadn't really considered it. 
But you're right. Like, just it's such a contrast of his outfit. Yeah, it's so it's so soft and yeah, it's soft and brown and crispy and like lovely. Like his like skin is so tanned and his like his like white. He looks so healthy, so healthy, so wonderful, so youthful and mm. so sort of optimistic. Yeah. Um. Whereas George's character, he's so you can see that he's very jaded, mm. and he's quite cynical about life. Mm. Um. Which, in a way, it makes me think, you know, it's kind of extraordinary, the idea that someone is planning their suicide that evening. They bothered to go to work mm. that day. You know, he's a, he's a professor. He teaches. Um, he does a lecture that day. And but he doesn't really want to die, does he? That's kind no, of the thing of the film. That's like, the thing of it. He's got lots kind of spilling out of him. He's got things to say. He's got things to tell people. He's got all these compliments yeah. to give. He's got, you know, all of these lovely things to... Little enjoy. unexpected moments. Little unexpected moments. It's the opposite of wanting to die. Yeah. He really want to die. No. He just wants not to wake up in pain anymore. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. That's it. Yeah, and, and so in a sense, do you think that his aversion to the mornings, like when he um, he says that he's not a morning person, he needs that ritual, right? Do you think that the the role that fashion plays in that scene, that very, you know, that very uh, com- convoluted ritual of mm. all the different steps that he has to go through because he shaves very closely. He's such a groomer. Like, he is, he's so fabulous. Like, I love his style. Do you think that the fact that he does reserve this time for himself to get ready and become George Falconer in the morning, do you think that he maybe uses that as something that he relies on definitely and yeah. I think that that's what Tom Ford thinks I think as you can tell what these both these directors think of fashion yeah through their work and Tom Ford clearly thinks of fashion as a bit of a lifeline and yeah. a bit of a um a, like this obviously like this very kind of important like almost magical mm-hmm. ritualistic meditative practice yeah that, that maybe saves his life and it's it's very possible. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, and Tom Ford said, I mean, he has literally said that fashion saved his life. He yeah. Says, you know, and it's you know, if he's he says if he's depressed, he can't work. But I'm sure it's the other way around as well. If he doesn't work, that it's that he's depressed. That's right. So all of that, all of that stuff, all of those doing those collections and making those fragrances and making yeah. those. It must it must be an incredible lifeline for him. So it's actually really we've got someone who's made a film about. Who's made? Who's saying they're making a film about joie de vivre and life? But mm. It's kind of making a film about mortification. Mm. And someone who says they're making a film about dying, but they're actually making a film about joie de vivre. A life affirming film, absolutely, it's yeah. exact reverse. They are, and they're these very two different ways to look at fashion. You, know, you yeah. can look at fashion as being very close to death, which it is in a lot of ways. But you can look at fashion as being a a savior and a way that you can think about yourself and connect with yourself and decide who you want to be. Yeah, absolutely. This um, kind of liberating this thing. This very liberating like grasp of individualism yeah. that you so desperately need. Yeah, it's so true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like how these t- two titles, in a sense, are trying to communicate actually very different things. but, but they're And it's all kind of seeped in this language of... Um, beauty that's communicated through the fashion world yeah I, I agree it's like um what 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 really excites me about Tom Ford is that 
because he was this wonderful fashion designer, he continues to have such a wonderful presence in that world. And he's so iconic. Um, it's exciting for someone like me, a cinephile, to see that he's now made not one, but now two films, mm. uh, Nocturnal Animals as well. I love that film. And he's already an auteur, mm. even with just two films under his belt. Because yeah, he's got a very complete vision. Yeah. <laughs> and it's great. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I can't wait to see his third film. Me too. <laughs> I think this is a good place to stop. Yeah. Um, we will be going into even further into the darkness of fashion with a couple of episodes on fashion and death, which yeah. I'm very excited about. Yeah, me too. So we'll talk. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.